Hello, it's uh, Robbie Koenig, and you're listening to the Tennis Lifestyle Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Lifestyle Podcast. I'm Gianluca Sala. Uh, I'm sure you recognized uh, the voice in the intro. He is my guest. Uh, it's Robbie Koenig. Um, Robbie is obviously one of the most uh, recognizable TV tennis commentators um, out there. Uh, it was a great conversation. Um, I must start by saying that Robbie was very accommodating, um, very down to earth, and it was a pleasure chatting to him, uh, made things very easy. Um, in our conversation, uh, we talked about uh, not only his broadcasting uh, career, but also his professional career as a ATP uh, player. Uh, he was very successful in doubles, um, having and he won five titles. And also, um, um, many he, he played in many semis, uh, both uh, men's doubles and mixed doubles, uh, Grand Slam semis. Um, we also briefly talk about his coaching career. Uh, we talk about South African tennis. Um, obviously, being from South Africa, uh, it was very interesting to... Um, um, get his views on South African tennis, on junior tennis, and also junior development. Um, that was a great chat too. Uh, and then obviously we talk about his broadcasting career. Um, he, as you know, is the voice that you hear in many channels um, all around the world. Currently, though, he is working for Amazon Prime UK. Uh, so unfortunately, we don't get to hear him anymore in South Africa. But um, yeah, he's a great uh, commentator. He's a great commentator, analyst. He talks about, um, great, gives great insight into matches, players. He obviously knows them very well as well. So it's always uh, interesting to listen to his uh, commentary. And, and he combines that also um, with great enthusiasm and his famous one-liners. Um, so the combination makes uh, for, uh, for a really nice... Um, tennis broadcast and listen. I always look forward to, uh, to, to, to listening to Robbie when he's on TV. Um, and apart from that, we also get to talk about his many passions. Uh, if you follow him on Twitter, where he's very active, um, you'll know that he talks a lot about um, not only tennis, but uh, fly fishing, his uh, huge love uh, of 80s music, um, and many other things. So maybe um, you might get to know a little bit more about him um, uh, in this uh, conversation than in other interviews. Um, also, listen to the rapid... At the end, we've got the rapid fire quiz. Uh, so that's always nice to listen to. <clears throat> anyway, it was a great chat. Um, I just want to add one thing. Uh, in this conversation, in this episode, unfortunately, my voice... Uh, was breaking up in some questions. Um, the good news is that I figured out what the problem is, uh, finally, so it shouldn't happen anymore. Um, having said that, uh, Robbie's voice is 100% clear. Uh, you can hear everything he says very clearly. And obviously, you're listening to this episode because you want to listen to Robbie, not to me. So it still flows all right, uh, and I think it's uh, it's fine. You will understand the conversation um, without any problems. 
if you've got any suggestions or uh, anybody that you think could be interesting that I could have on my podcast who's got an interesting background or tennis story, get in contact, get in touch with me. You'll find me on uh, Twitter, but mostly on Instagram, tennis underscore lifestyle underscore podcast. That's my Instagram um, name. Uh, also, uh, you'll find me on tennisworldusa.org. Uh, my podcasts are also all on there. It's one of the most um, well-known tennis news websites, so uh, you could find me on there as well. Well, anyway, that's it. Uh, enjoy the conversation. Ciao, ciao. How are you, Robbie? Hey, Gianluca. Yeah, nice to have a chat about tennis, man. Uh, something that's obviously very close to both of our hearts. Before we get into our chat, did you watch the Labour Cup? Yeah, I watched the bits and pieces of it, uh, Gianluca. Um, it was also a Ryder Cup weekend as well, so that had a lot of attention. I'm a big golfer, so uh, I love the Ryder Cup. The All Blacks were playing against the Springboks, so it was a very busy weekend. And given that I watched so much tennis all year round, um, I, uh, I had to ration myself a little bit on the tennis so I could catch up on some of the other sports I love. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a very very busy busy weekend. Um, but do you think maybe the team Europe is is too strong, or um, should they just continue the way it is? Yeah, I mean, you know, once you set the format out, um, mm -hmm. you you've got to stick with what you've got. I mean, this year has been particularly one sided. I know Europe have won the last three as well, which I was part of, but. Um, they were a lot closer than this one. I think the scoring format usually lends itself to, to evening out um, the talent on either side of the pond. But it, it wasn't the case this time. And I think you could see the, the, the determination from the Europeans, especially the young guys, to, to put the, the rest of the world in their place. They did a pretty good job of that. Um, and also, you know, I think some of the picks like Nick Kyrgios, I think Nick is, by the sounds of things, close to getting ready to hang up his rackets. He hasn't played much tennis this year. Um, he, he wasn't a yeah. force to be reckoned with like he was in previous Labour Cups. So, yeah, I think, if, if anything, the rest of the world team wasn't nearly as strong as what it has been or not as motivated as what it has been in previous Labour Cups. Yeah. Uh, do you think maybe, um, just before we go on to talk about you, but uh, do you think maybe they should include women in the Labour Cup? Do you think maybe... Could be could even it out a bit, make it more interesting. Or no, I think that's a fantastic idea. I've seen a few people bandy that idea around on social media, and I think that would be a great leveler. Um, and mm. I think you know we're one of the very few sports in the world where we can get men and women playing on the same platform. And it seems that the wider tennis community loves it when it happens. So I definitely think that will be something that's in the pipeline. And perhaps especially so for the organizers after seeing such a one-sided affair this year, you know, that's something that might come onto their radar in, in a greater way now, um, as you say, in order to even things out. Can you tell us uh, your tennis journey, where you were born, where you grew up and um, yeah, how you got into tennis? Yeah, I'm a Durban boy through and through. So yeah, I grew up in uh, Westville in, in Durban. Went to Westville Boys High School, which was fantastic times. We had um, the strongest tennis team in the country back in those days, the likes of Ellis Ferreira, who won 
multiple majors. Kirk Hagarth, who played a couple of years on the tour. We had Miles Wakefield, who played a couple of years on the tour as well. Roger Mills, who played college tennis in the States. So the level of tennis that I had around me growing up was fantastic. It was very blessed. And Durban was such a, a force to be reckoned with in interprovincials back in the day. So, you know, those childhood memories growing up in Westville, playing tennis at the Westville Tennis Club were, were fantastic memories for me. But, you know, I only came to tennis probably a, a little later. I only started to be a, a decent junior. I would say second year under 16. That's when I started to to beat a few of the top guys in the country. Um, okay. And that's when, you know, my, my love for the game grew even more off the back of that. Um, and, yeah, I think those last three years of, of my junior career were, were pretty decent, certainly from a local point of view. Okay. Um, was there a specific moment um, where you realised, um, okay, now I I can make a profession out of tennis. I can become, I can make a living. I can become a professional tennis player. Was there, was there a, a specific moment in time? Yeah, I think there was. There was um, two challenger events that, um, that didn't get sanctioned that were played at the end of the year in South Africa. This must have been at the end of, I think, 89 it was. And uh, I was main draw. It became basically like two South African Opens back to back, but the money stayed. And the one in Joburg um, ended up being a disaster because my good friend Brad Summers and me had a mix up and he, he forgot to pick me up or I forgot to tell him to pick me up on the way to, to Ellis Park. And I got defaulted from the tournament, which at that stage in my career was the biggest tournament I was going to play in the main draw, money-wise, everything. And I was devastated. Oh. I'd been training towards this. Um, and then the following week, we had another big event in Cape Town. And okay. in the quarterfinals there, I beat Christo Van Rensburg. And Christo was you know, still a, a decent pro at that time. And I think when I beat yeah. him, that was like, okay, I, I might have a shot at be, being able to make a career out of this. And yeah, okay. I would say if there was a light bulb moment, that, that was it, beating Christo. And I just remember that day playing incredible seven volley tennis i just couldn't miss and i thought well if this is the level to be a top 100 player meaning christo uh then you know maybe i have got half a chance okay okay were your parents happy or did they support you yeah my parents were amazing you know they were never full-on tennis parents i mean they hardly watched me play they would drop me off and leave me to my own devices. Occasionally, they'd, they'd come and watch. They, ne they certainly never traveled overseas, but incredibly supportive. You know, if I, if I wanted to get up early before school to go to gym, my mom would always drop me off. Um, but they were never helicopter parents. Uh, I, think they, I think my mom in particular was quite surprised that, that I didn't take up an offer to go to college in America. I had two really good offers from Miami, University of Miami and Pepperdine um, in California. Oh, wow. So, okay. and I didn't take those up, but I decided to go pro instead with, um, at the same time, the South African Tennis Union started their elite, uh, elite squads. And for the first time I got drafted into a squad setup. So uh, I think my mom was a little okay. shocked. She came from a family that was highly educated. All my brothers and sisters are highly educated. So, you know, I think it was a very strange one for her that I, I wasn't engaging in a proper job as far as, far as she was concerned. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um. You you mostly played um 
with with other South Africans um, in doubles, um, David Adams, Marius Barnard, um, John Lafnida Jaeger, and so on. Um, a question I've asked, I've actually had a few of them also on my podcast uh, previously, and a question I've asked many of them um, is, why did South Africa produce, especially in that your era, that era, let's say 90s, beginning 2000s, so many top doubles players? Um, there was a, a, a period, I think, um, where there was close to 15 top 100, if I'm correct. Um, you know, P.T. Norville, uh, Chris Haggard, Wesley Moodley, um, and I'm missing many more. Um, yeah. what, what's your opinion? Why, why was there so many good doubles players? Look, I, I think certain volley tennis was very much the norm when we were growing up. You, you know, I still grew up in my early part of my career with wooden rackets, so certain volley was big. I think uh, we did so much of it. We didn't have clay courts to spend time at the back of the court. We played a lot of big tournaments up in Joburg. So, you know, that was even more suited to aggressive style of tennis. So, yeah. you know, again, serving okay. volley was was often well suited to playing up in Joburg. Um, so, you know, I think, and I also think the fact that perhaps we weren't super athletes like a Wayne Ferreira or a, a Marcus Andruska, um, okay. you know, kind of, lent itself to covering half the court. So, um, okay. you know, probably just a little easier for us that hold, at holes in our games. I think someone like Ellis Ferreira could have easily been a top 50 singles player if he had um, applied himself better physically because talent-wise, being a lefty, he was an unbelievable player. I remember him winning the first set okay. against Edberg when he qualified at Wimbledon one year. I think he won the first set against Edberg 6-1 out on court number oh. two, and he just blew Edberg away. And, I mean, that was what Ellis was capable of doing, but he couldn't sustain it for more than, you know, 45 minutes an hour in singles. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody's got um, pretty much mentions the fact of the servant volley and playing in high altitude, and that. The, uh, but also what you're saying physically is very interesting. And um, also I think maybe uh, a few, few uh, people I, I spoke to also mentioned just at a certain point, it became financially better to to play doubles, um, especially coming from South Africa, maybe, and uh, then, then playing singles. Um, so um, no, I, I think that's maybe very much the case. Very much the case. The same yeah. for me. You know, I played singles for seven years, and I think after yeah. seven years of playing singles, um, I probably had about forty or fifty thousand dollars to show for all my all my years on tour, which wasn't much. And then in '97, I remember when John Lafney and, and myself qualified at the US Open in in one week I qualified and I think we made quarters that year in ninety seven. I made more money in you know in ten days than I'd made pretty much my my whole tennis mm. career. And it was a no brainer for me to go solely focus all my efforts on doubles because, you know, I was getting a little older now. It's like the singles thing wasn't really working out for me the way I thought it might be. And, yeah, I think it was a natural progression for somebody like me who still loved the game, absolutely loved the game, but yeah. just didn't have the weapons to to do well in singles. Yeah. But those weapons, seven volley and having yeah. good hands, translated well onto the doubles tour. Awesome. Um, was there a player um, that you found really tough to play against or that you could never beat? Yeah, um, 
certainly the Woodies. I think I played Todd and Mark six times. I lost to them six times. But I definitely on two occasions, it might have even been three occasions, we had match points against them and lost. So it wasn't like they drummed us, but they always seemed to get the better of us in the tight moments. So, um, you know, Todd and me do a lot of commentating together and we're still good friends. And I, I always remind them the reason my, my kids had to go to public schools rather than private schools was because he cost me a lot of money on the tennis tour. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think as a team, they were pretty tough. Um, I had a pretty good record against the Bryans. We played them okay. six times. We beat them three times, John Luffney and myself. Um, oh, but wow. As an individual okay. player, I think it would be Daniel Nesta. Uh, Danny Nesta was the toughest individual person for me to play against. I thought that guy was so bloody talented, man. Uh, he could do anything. And he was just a nightmare of a matchup for somebody like myself who didn't have any weapons. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've heard that before, the Nesta. Um, and, and uh, okay, who do you, so do you, would you reckon he was one of the greatest doubles players ever? Or, or who, do you, who would you put right up there? Or pair? Um, I mean, as a pair, it's, it's hard to argue against the numbers that the Bryans have posted. Their numbers are quite mind-boggling okay. um okay. you know over i think 116 117 titles together more majors than anybody um and the worst thing about them is that they are just the nicest guys in the world you, at least if they were assholes you could put them down but they have been the most fantastic ambassadors <laughs> of the game you could possibly imagine john luca and and still to this day you know they carry on they carry on now. Yeah. They were heavily involved with the U.S. summer. They go around, they do clinics. And, you know, they're so talented musically. Yeah. So they've got this gig whereby they, they do clinics at uh, tennis tournaments for a couple of days. And then normally on one of the evenings, they'll do like a, a Q&A with a, a nice party yeah. afterwards where they are the musicians themselves playing songs. And, um, you know, and they, they still I, get paid. I heard they, they, they also... Um, yeah, I heard they also like um, hook up with Kevin Anderson sometimes, and because uh, he's he's a pretty good guitar player apparently. Uh, Robbie, just to talk about uh, South African tennis, in my opinion, uh, it's not going through a fantastic moment. But what what do you think? Um, why this is, and uh, you know, if the federation, do you think something can change or, or do something to improve the the, the level, the standard? Well, I'll start with the end of your question. I think they've, they've, they've done a decent job in the last 18 months or so with trying to get more international tournaments in the UK, so um, in, in South Africa. So I think they've, yeah. they are trying hard, and it's not easy. Finances, the, the purse strings are quite tight to tennis South Africa. Um, you know, just of late, I know we've had a couple of futures events. We've got some grade A's and grade one and twos coming up. Um, so I think they've done a good job of hosting these events, which brings international players to our shores. Now, certainly when I was playing, we had lots of challenger events and satellites, as they were called back in the days. Uh, so we got, we got to see the, the international level. And when you see yeah. that level firsthand, you realize how much harder you have to work and how much more disciplined you have to be in your training. So I think for, for many years, we've lacked that. But then, you know, that's, that's purely a financial issue. And then, of course, traveling mm. abroad is expensive on our, on our South African rands. If you want to go yeah. and base yourself in Europe somewhere and travel from week to week, uh, if you have a coach with you, you're paying all their expenses as well. It costs a lot. 
and mm. and that's the only way you find out about the level that is required is by playing against these better players. And that's the one tough thing about tennis is that you are very mm. much reliant on the people that you practice with day in and day out to improve. It's not yeah. like, say, golf, where you can mm. you can go and hit a thousand golf balls. I, I don't play against you when we play golf. I play against the course. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can, but whereas tennis, you're, you're so reliant on that ball coming from a a better player on the other side of the net to make you better. Yeah. And okay. and the only way to do that is to travel and spend bucks doing it. And, you know, that has been, uh, it's always been a difficult thing for, for us guys in South Africa. And of course there's tournaments in Africa, but the level's not the same in Africa as it is in Europe or the States. So, you know, mm. somebody like Lloyd Harris, that's where Anthony Harris has got to get, get a lot of credit. What him and Aitan mm. Adams have done for Lloyd Finding sponsors, you know, Andrew's yeah. pretty much um, dedicated his life to helping Lloyd and and building a top hundred player. And yeah. now, you know, and, and it takes a takes an enormous amount of effort and sacrifice and finding sponsors and money. And if you can't get it through Tennis South Africa, finding private sponsors. So, yeah, I think yeah. That, that's certainly. And I think there's a lot of other sports now that interest kids. You know, tennis back when when I was growing up. It was one of these sports to play. It was like, you know, tennis, cricket, rugby. Those were the main sports. Now you've got so many other sports um, yeah. taking attention away. Yes. Yeah. Hello? So, yeah. you know, you lose those athletes yeah. to other sports. Um, and mm. I, I just think kid tennis has become a more yeah. global sport now. It's become tougher to break through. The level now is so much higher when yeah. I was playing. Um, so... You know, you've got more and more people that come from Eastern Europe or South America. That tennis is the only way of improving their lot in life. So they'll do anything. Mm. You know, some of us come from comfortable families and, and our sacrifice isn't as great as someone who's got nothing else but tennis in their life. Uh, and you see that, especially mm -hmm. on the women's side of things, the Eastern Europeans, they are ruthless, yeah. man. You know, sometimes yeah. they're too fuzzy no, to I'm... here in South Africa. Yeah, no, there I, I can honestly say, I mean, I'm here close to Stellenbosch and up to a few years ago, we had those free futures. And um, whenever these Eastern European women came, um, yeah, they were scary. <laughs> they, would, they were, uh, they meant business. You could see it immediately. Yeah, yeah totally, totally, absolutely. Uh, if, if um, uh, no, you have a great answer. I mean, um, covered everything there um, if, if you had to advise uh, give advice to a young junior um, or a, a young top junior South African um, that wants to go pro uh, and is very serious about it what what sort of advice would you give him um, I think the number one advice now you know I've got an 18 year old kid so I've, I've seen my boy Luke go through this process and I think it's so important to work on the physical side from a young age. So movement, yes. patterns, strength. Don't be scared to play different sports that, you know, can cross-train you for tennis. But but do things whereby it's going to help your tennis uh, later on in life. I mean, there was a lovely video that was circulating after Emma Raducanu won the US Open of her seven years of age playing on an indoor court, hitting balls and you just see the, the, the movement of, 
excuse me, the movement of her feet was unbelievable back then. You know, for somebody like her, it might have been natural. She hits an open stance forehand, yeah. makes, you know, the, the crossover step to get back into the court. So light on her feet. You know, I would definitely start yeah. working on on the physical side. I think that's so important. And then, you know, good technique, yeah. I think, is also important. And if you're lucky enough to play on a clay court, even if it's an artificial clay court, just get used to the sliding and the imbalancing that clay yes. does to your game. Mm. Because when you are imbalanced, of course, the body's reaction to hit a good shot is to find balance. And, and that constant fine-tuning really helps your core and the strength in your legs. So it's not only about playing on clay because it's slow, but absolutely because of movement and balance. So if you can find, even if it's artificial clay, you know, we've got one, one court up here yeah. in Hillcrest that we use a, a fair bit. Um, but that's what I would, I mean, obviously, if you've got the finances to send kids overseas, I think that's important. But I wouldn't rush to do it too young. I think if yeah if you've got the money, yeah. you know, save it for when they like sixteen uh, under sixteen under eighteen, rather than trying to do it too early. Worry about developing them early on. Mm. Don't worry too much about winning uh, and losing. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. I, I love talking about junior tennis more more than professional tennis. But um, yeah, I think what you said about the physical, um, it's, uh, I don't want to make this too long, but the, the physical aspect of tennis, I've noticed, unfortunately, um, it, it gets like put aside um, completely in the junior. And, and your son, I, who I actually have seen um, in TSA tournaments and Tennis South Africa tournaments grow up, and does he want to uh, follow in your footsteps? He'd love to go pro, but he's just right now, he's still got a lot of work to do. And, you know, he hits the ball very well. I think his, again, he's another perfect example of someone who needs to work harder on the physical side of his game. The feet movement, um, being able to mm. defend as well as attack. So, you know, I looking back now at everything I taught him and everything his coaches taught him, we definitely could have worked more on on the footwork and the physical side of things. Just, just to fine tune mm. uh, those footwork patterns, but um, yeah, you know, I think he's certainly yeah. way ahead of where I was at this stage when I was eighteen. But um, okay. you know, he's he's got a couple of colleges that are interested in him. So maybe next year, August, September, he'll he'll be heading to the states for a couple of years to do that. But uh, we still got a bit of time between now and then. Uh, send him out into the big wide tennis world and see how we can. Uh, see how he can do before he decides to go to college in the States, uh, if that's the way he wants to go. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Yeah. You, are you, are you all, are you very, very um, pro college route? Um, yeah. I think if you're not good enough to, to go pro straight away, which I think very few players are, I really believe it's, it's an excellent way to, to continue to grow your tennis and, I think it also tells you a lot about the individuals because those colleges, the setups is very comfortable in American colleges. They have spectacular training facilities. Obviously, you're on campus. You've got a lot of distraction with boys and girls. So I think those who, who aren't that serious about their tennis, they probably get uh, involved, um, you know, with partying and enjoying themselves at college. But there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I also think those that are serious about perhaps making a career one day, they, they use those four years 
as a, as a major stepping stone to developing themselves as a player in a wonderful environment and then using mm. that as a springboard. So I think at the end of the day, it tells you a lot about the individual and yes. um, you know how badly mm. they want it. Because let me tell you, once you go from playing college tennis and being in a team environment where everything is taken care of for you and you're training yeah. in these amazing facilities, you know, when you have to go out and play, you know, futures and some some of these godforsaken places on the planet, it's not a lot of fun. I tell you what, in those early days, early years, sometimes yeah. trying to trying to get the ranking up. Um, so mm. you better love what you do. Yes, yeah, it can be very lonely. Yeah. Um, talk um, about your um, broadcasting career between your play. You also did a bit of coaching. Is is that correct? How how was that experience? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I was with Wesley Moody for about six months and um, he was playing doubles with Mahesh Bupati. So I worked with Mahesh for that entire year. And after six months, uh, Wes, Wes split with me. He didn't want to use me anymore. Um, and I quickly understood that, you know, the the coaching dynamic on tour is is quite a fragile one. You know, one day the, the coach wants you and he believes in you and then, excuse me, the player wants you and believes in you. And then, you know, if he's not happy with the way results are going or for whatever reason, uh, you're sidelined and you, you're back on the carousel mm. looking for another player. I mean, so, le- recently, yeah. Rad- Raducanu, I mean, that's that just came out of nowhere. You know, that's amazing, in my opinion, that she just decided to split after winning a Grand Slam. <laughs> yeah, no, I think... I think the arrangement with Andrew Richardson was always a temporary one. It was always that one was always until the end of the U.S. Open. She just went with him to the uh, to the U.S. for that swing. So I think, um, oh, yeah, okay. for those in the know, aren't that surprised? Uh, you know, may, maybe they're surprised that she hasn't decided to continue with him. But I know he's got commitments with his own son. But you're just getting back to my point. Um, yeah, I absolutely sorry. love yeah. the co- I absolutely love the coaching side. And like you suggesting, I almost find the development of a young kid better than in training a pro. You, you know, the pro is the finished product. All you're doing is a little bit of fine-tuning and polishing. And um, mm. Whereas trying to develop a player from a young age, that's proper coaching, hey? It's, yeah. Mm. The work is tireless and sometimes it's not rewarding when you're coaching a young kid and you can't see them getting better for years. Uh, mm. You're trying to do things, um, but let me tell you, when it starts to come together, and you know, and if you've done a half decent job, when it comes together, it comes together quickly. And and I had that experience with my own son. You know, I try to teach Luke to do things that perhaps weren't conducive to him winning as an under twelve, under fourteen player. Mm. And yes. plus, he was he, he was still small. He was still growing. But once he got to second yeah. year under 16, first year under 18, you know, kids that he'd been losing to, suddenly he didn't just mm. beat them, but he left them, you know, in the rear of your mirror by a long way. And it's just mm. suddenly everything comes together. And you realize that mm. all those eight, nine, ten years of hard work, um, you know, yeah. That's what yeah. it's that's what it's all about. And when it comes together, how good is it when it comes together? And I find that yeah. so rewarding. Um, yeah. I think it's a lot easier 
to coach pros than it is to develop players from from a young age. I think a lot of professional yeah. coaching might not be that technical. It's I think it's more mental, understanding the psychology of the sport, understanding the, the personality and psychology of the player that you're working with. I would almost say that is more important than the game because, mm. you know, a lot, a lot of these guys know how to play the game. But, yeah, at the end of the day, you always got to remember, um, certainly when you're coaching pros, that, you know, a great player makes a great coach. Um, and sometimes you can do a good job with a player and be a little unlucky. And then the next guy who jumps on as his coach is seen as the rock star because, mm. you know, um, they've had they've had good results. And, you know, I've seen a lot of coaches in my time being on tour, not only from my playing days, but from my commentating days, who have, who have been at the right place in the right time. And, yeah, you, you know, they get to have a profile that um, perhaps I don't think they might deserve but just because they've been a little lucky. And there's other pros that I, uh, other, sorry, other coaches that I think have been incredible coaches, but the timing hasn't been there for them. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, they've been a little unlucky. And as soon as the, the players left them, he's had success somewhere else. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, coaching's a, it's an interesting one. It's, it's a very interesting one. And, you know, I definitely <laughs> think it's one of those scenarios where uh, it is certainly not one size fits all. So dependent yeah. on what the player. Sometimes the player just wants a good friend with them. They don't want someone who to tell yeah. them, you know, how, how fast their serve is or how fast their forehand is or or too much technical information. They just want um, they just want to feel good because mm. then if they feel good, they'll play good. Yeah, yeah. I, I I also think ultimately this is again just my opinion. If if a, the the ultimate coach, in my opinion, is the coach who who takes the child and puts the racket in his hand. And brings him to number one in the world. I mean, there aren't there aren't that many, but uh, I think uh, he's gone through all those stages. And, um, and I mean, in my opinion, that is an incredible achievement. I, I, I spoke to uh, uh, in one of my podcasts to Geoffrey Porta um, he, from from Mallorca, and he basically did that with Moya, Carlos Moya. And uh, I, I think there's a uh, uh, that really is, um, in my opinion, the, the ultimate coach. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know what you think about that. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I mean, so what about Richard Williams, right? I mean, how amazing is, yeah. is that, that he's got two yeah. girls that have been multiple Grand Slam champions and, you know, world number one. Obviously, Uncle Tony, very mm. similar sort of scenario with Rafa. Um, yeah. Mikhail Yushni is a very interesting case in point. I mean, didn't get to number one in the world, but you know, he was, you know, with his coach was, since 10 years of age, uh, Mikhail Yushin. Boris, with, with Boris, Boris Sopkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I've got, um, I've, got a, uh, I've got a lot of respect for those guys. Yeah. Um, just to jump on your broadcasting um, career. I used to get you in South Africa on Supersport, and uh, it's been a year or two that we don't, so we're very upset. Um, what happened? <laughs> uh, thanks, uh, Gianluca. No, um, so I was working for um, uh, ATP Media, who are the host broadcasters of all the Masters 1000 events. And South Africa tends to take what is known as the world feed, so that's why yes. you guys would hear me all the time. Um, 
But in the last two and a half years, I have been contracted to work with Amazon in the UK. So that is only for the UK broadcast, uh, for, for the tennis broadcast. So I only get heard mostly in the UK now because that's who the bulk of my work is with. But then occasionally for, say, Australian Open, I'm back working for the host broadcaster. So you would hear me for, say, Australian Open, normally the US Open, not this year. This year was a little different. Um, so those are two events where I do the world feed still. But, yeah, um, okay. that's that's the, the main reason why. And uh, Amazon Prime, can anybody in the world get Amazon Prime UK or must you be in the UK to get it? You must be in the UK to get it. So that's that's the television oh, I see. Television rights are geo-blocked. That's, that's obviously okay. why you pay for television rights uh, in certain okay. areas so that um, – so that nobody else can show it in that in that and, part of the world. And and is it right? I think I read somewhere that they Amazon Prime UK they they've they've actually um, bought the rights to to a lot of sporting events and and much more tennis. Is is, is that correct? Recently, yeah. So yeah, so they have got pretty much all the tennis now, except okay. Wimbledon, uh, Wimbledon French. And Australian Open, but I think they they're going to acquire certainly. I think the Australian Open and the French Open pretty soon. They got all the men's and women's tour events, ATP and WTA events, and they've got the US Open. So there's only about three tennis events that they don't have now. But um, okay. from what I understand, they they're going to be acquiring those in the years to come when Eurosports when Eurosports. Uh, contract runs out with the French Open and the Australian Open. That's what I believe. So, yeah, and, and obviously with Emma doing well, Naima Raducanu being in the, the UK space is going to be, yeah. you know, fantastic timing for them. Amazon's new to tennis. So it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good timing for Amazon right good, now. Good time, yeah. Um, um, just to jump on another topic, uh, but always to do with broadcasting. Um, there's been a lot of talk um, recently or in the past year, especially if you take someone like Patrick Mortagulu, um, about basically the tennis viewership. People, this is his opinion. I actually don't know if it's true or not, but you know, people are not watching tennis. The interest in tennis is declining. Um, especially the younger generation doesn't seem interested anymore. Uh, something needs to be done. Um, the format must be changed, blah, blah, blah. Uh, tennis matches are too long. Um, I mean, I can continue forever. Uh, I'll, I'll, it, in my opinion, and I look at uh, my kids who are 16 and uh, a lot of the other kids around that age and younger, um, I, I kind of agree with that. I don't think the younger generation, it's used to a time span now that is much shorter. I, I don't think they can sit down and watch a whole match, not even a free setter. They'll, they might watch the highlights or the, the last few games or whatever. Uh, do you think the ATP, the WTA, and, and maybe the broadcasters must maybe change something to bring... Uh, more audience, more younger generation to view? Or, or is that actually not true, that actually the viewership is increasing? I'd just like to hear from you. <clears throat> no, I think, certainly I know in the UK, the, the average age of a viewer is 61 years of age. So, you know, those, oh, really? those would have been the people that grew up 
watching tennis in the, the late 70s, early 80s when the sport was in its prime, when we had the likes of Borg, McEnroe, Connors, um, all at the peak mm. of the game. And tennis was, you know, it's, it's one of the coolest sports in the world to play. It certainly was one of the most lucrative for for an athlete mm. to be part of. But I just think this, yeah. again, you, you're competing with so many other sports now. Some sports are just easier to play. You know, it's easier for a kid to take up basketball and and have a basketball and play pick up uh, pick up basketball with a mate. Mm. Tennis is a lonely sport, eh, Gianluca? You're on your own. Mm. It's not a team sport. Yeah, I mean, we've just come off a US Open where we've seen the most number of five setters almost ever at an event. Um, everybody I've spoken to said it's one of the best US Opens they've watched in the last 25 years. So those advocating for you know, three out of um, two out of three sets at the majors. You know that that puts a big dent in that argument. But um, listen, the viewing yeah. numbers. I don't know what the viewing numbers are now versus twenty years ago. You hear so many different numbers being thrown around and bandied around. You know, when it's a big match, people okay. tune in. That that is the bottom line. You know, when Nadal and and Federer are playing together. And again, it depends on the geography of where the players are from. So, you know, if a player is from a big country, yeah. like when Redekanu is, is playing in the finals, you know, you've got Canada, viewership from Canada and the UK. It's massive in those countries. Our viewership uh, in the UK was, was pretty big. It, they, they, uh, they put it on free-to-air. Um, but uh, okay. is, it, is it the time to go about changing the sport? I think, I think we'd have to get to a point where the sponsorship and what people are prepared to pay for tennis rights gets worse. I think still now we're getting decent okay. money for our tennis rights. I think it would have to get a lot worse before the authorities would consider changing the format of the sport. That's my personal opinion. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, you, you're also famous um in your broadcasting, you are very famous for your Koenig-isms. Um, here, here are a few Koenig-isms that I'm going to uh, tell you. Um, do you remember and can you tell us the first time you said it? I'll, I'll start with the first one. Obviously, I can't do it the way you do it, but he's got those reflexes. On yeah, I think that was Roger Federer somewhere, Gianluca. Um, yeah, it was an unbelievable point. I think both guys were at the net. I, I can't even remember where it was. But yeah, it's funny that that one caught on with a lot of people. I don't use it that much because you got to I think you got to save it for a specific situation, and it doesn't happen all that often. But yeah, you know, I don't know who these people are that put these videos together and stuff. Uh, that's where. That's where the internet boggles my mind, even. And uh, you know, people put these videos together. And hey, I'm so glad it makes people laugh and they and they find it entertaining because I think that's part of my job, right? Hopefully, I want to get good information. But I'm in the entertainment business, and if, if they find it funny and entertaining, um, yeah. I'm really happy that I can I can make the viewing experience better for them. And okay, the second one, it's tennis nearer the golf. Yeah, that came from, um, I'll tell you where that came from. 
that came. I was reading a book called. Uh, what's it called now? Um, a short history about just about everything. I can't remember who writes the book. A short history about everything, and it was uh, mm-hmm. a German, uh, a German gentleman who was a, a brilliant. He had a brilliant mind, Gottfried von Leibniz. And he said that about Sir Isaac Newton. He said he had a brain that was nearer the gods that no mortal could approach. (laughs) And when I was reading it, I just thought, what an incredible way of describing somebody who is so superior in their field. How can I adapt that to tennis? Um, So, yeah, so, so that's kind of how I come up with the stuff. Because okay. I'll tell you what happened, Gianluca, is certainly in the early days of my, my commentating, I would, I would listen to highlights and I would be using similar sort of adjectives all the time. And then when you listen to highlights, because often people listen to highlights, especially with the advent of social media, you know, it's, it's just two or three minutes of amazing shots and clips. Yeah. And I found myself saying, oh, that's unbelievable. That's an unbelievable four. It's an unbelievable backhand. It's an unbelievable smash. It's an unbelievable get. And I just thought, hang yeah. on, you know, yeah. I need to vary the way uh, I describe the same thing because sport by nature is repetitive. So that's yes. how I started to think, okay, how can I describe the same thing in 30 different ways? And then yes. it just kind yeah. of became a progression from that. Um, yeah. yeah, and then you know, there's, there's yeah. I take a, yeah. I take a lot of inspiration yeah. from famous actors and actresses and famous okay. athletes. I'm a big fan of Mark Twain. I thought the guy was an absolute oh, yeah. legend. Yeah. He's so funny. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, so Great that's words. kind of where I get my inspiration from, and and musicians as well. You know, lines and great songs that okay. if you if you mention a line in a song, if it's you know, if it's a, a song that everybody probably yeah. has heard, they might they might recognize it and think, well, Hey, okay, I can see where Robbie's well, got that one from. Yeah. Well, I mean it, you, it I just wanted to say you make that to be honest, to to commentate on a match of tennis, something that you know already is gonna last longer than an hour, it I think it must be very difficult because you can't just say you did a great back, backhand or a great forehand for an hour or two hours and people are going to fall asleep. So, I mean, what you're doing, obviously, I think is amazing because you, you, it's very entertaining. And uh, I think people want also entertainment, uh, not only, and you know, statistics and, uh, you know, stuff like that. Uh, one of my personal favorites is he's given him the frozen rope. That yeah. one... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so obviously that comes from golf. Um, that's, that's often a, you know you hear golfers talking about a you know a two iron that was a frozen rope. It's a ball that doesn't deviate on its path. So yeah. you know, I think that's an easy one to take from um, from golfing commentary and use it in tennis commentary. It, it translates um, almost identically. But, yeah. One-liners uh, are are not really always spontaneous. You you kind of think them think them through beforehand am i correct yeah no, absolutely absolutely yeah. so um okay. you know when i when i come across something that i think is is fun it's a great way of describing a situation 
and then I might try and adapt it to a tennis situation. But for me, the key when I'm commentating is to deliver it as if it was off the off the cuff. I think that's the skill, right? Rather than than it sounding, um, you know, prepared. Uh, and that's something mm. I've got better at, at doing over the years. And I think it's important mm. to, to wait for the right scenario uh, to use something because then it's a lot more impactful. I remember in the, you know, the first couple of years when I was um, trying to introduce that way of commentating, uh, if I found something good, I was just so keen to use it. But you kind of crowbarred in there and it, you listen back to it and you think, shit, you know, that wasn't great. Um, I should have been more patient because as it would have it, you know, one or two games later, the perfect scenario comes up, right? Okay. Uh, and so, yeah. yeah, you just learn patience. Sometimes, you know, I've had things I've written down. I haven't used it for a year or two. And then the perfect situation comes up and then it, it complements the tennis nicely rather than, you know, taking away from the tennis. Yeah. Also, another one I like is the, your attitude determines your altitude. Um, I think that one's uh, one that I use often also with with my kids. Yeah, and I think anything in life, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, finally, uh, um, Robbie, um, you, you seem, through social media at least, you seem to be a very passionate person. You've, you've got lots of interests and hobbies yep. uh, by the looks of it. Um, some, I must say, are great, and but but some I'm not too sure of, and I'll I'll speak to you about them just now. <laughs> but let, let's start with the with the good ones. Uh, I, I you seem to be quite into fly fishing. <laughs> yes, very much yeah. so. That's, okay. uh, I'm going to be doing that uh, till the day I fall over. Hopefully, um, just the beauty. There's a there's a a saying that trout fishermen often use, and they say trout don't live in ugly places. Okay. <laughs> uh, it just takes you to the most beautiful places on this planet. Okay. Where, where, where's the where's where's the most beautiful place you, you you've been um, to to do fly fishing? Uh, probably New Zealand and uh, Idaho. Montana, okay. Idaho border. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever been to to Franschuk, close to to where where we where I am? Franschuk, I, I've been, but I didn't know there's fly fishing there. Is there no fly fishing? Okay. I, I, I remember going 10 years ago. Uh, okay, in Franschhoek. Okay, well, that's good. I, I know Luke's got some tennis tournaments down there, so now you've got me interested. I'll have to have a look if there's any rooms in the area next time I'm in Stellenbosch. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I might be wrong. I just remember going going somewhere 10 years ago. I mean, I'm not a fly fisher, but um, I might be wrong, but uh, you can let me know. The, 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 the other thing that you really like is you, you must let us know what kind of setup do you have at home? Believe it or not, um, I've got an Italian machine, small one, uh, not one of those big fancy ones. It's called uh, a Gagia. I got it in the UK when I was living there, and it does a fantastic okay. job. But I don't drink a lot of coffee, Gianluca. That's that's what might surprise you. Um, oh, I probably only okay. have about, you know, maybe five five or six coffees a week uh, flat white normally so okay. kind of, I, I like going out to have a coffee and uh, rather than, than having it at home and going through the process if I think I've had a maybe one one day when I'm older and a, and a bit more wiser I'll have my own 
machine at home, but I do like the uh, the process of going out and seeing the different coffees out there when we go to countries and you know okay. Australia has uh, you know Melbourne incredible coffee culture, New Zealand as well. Um, South Africa's coffee culture is right up there with the very best I've come across too. Mm, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's, you know. um, another one, which I'm not sure of, I think I've saw it on your social media, but correct me. Are you, do you happen to be a Liverpool football uh, fan? Yeah, uh, I am. I'm not hardcore though. I'm not like <laughs> some of these guys that you meet who will, will have a fight with you about it because they, they're very tribal. Um, it's just okay. you know, when, when we were in the UK, my, my eldest son started school there and obviously the kids speak about it a lot and they kept asking him who's his team and I said, well, I've never really had a team. So he said, who should okay. our team be? So I said, well, there's this guy called Steven Gerrard. He, he plays the game hard. He's a, a hell of a competitor. I like the way he does it. And he plays for Liverpool. So we say they're our team and he said, yes, Dad, let's make them our team. <laughs> so that's basically how I became a Liverpool fan. Okay. And then lastly, uh, the one that I'm very... Um not sure about is your um love of 80s music um oh, why why so, so what is the best music in your opinion <laughs> no i i think i'm I, well i know i'm from so i went through the 80s as well but yeah i'm not sure i i, I don't think it's actually a very good decade for music <laughs> i don't know but but you seem to really enjoy the music from the 80s. I think I might have to give you a, a yellow card for this, Gianluca. <laughs> I think you might be getting a yellow card, man. <laughs> uh, what a generation. You got some of the greatest rock bands. Um, none of this bullshit synthesizing uh, that, uh, music layovers. I mean, there was, sorry, there were synthesizers did come into it, you know, with, with a couple of the bands. But these days, no one's got any talent, man. Everybody does everything else for them, and it gets you record your voice over there, and then they mix it over here. I just love the fact, uh, you know, there's rock bands selling out stadiums back in the day, ACDC and Aerosmith and the Stones. I mean, uh, got two okay. of the greatest rock bands ever. Okay, well, but that's not really the 80s, the, the, the Stones. and Yeah, I mean, they started in the I... 70s, for sure. They started okay. in the 70s, but uh, they spilled over into, well, they've been around for five decades. Okay. okay and, uh, well, well, then I, must, I, I agree with you, but when, when I think of the 80s, it's more like, um, how can I say, like Culture Club, and which are not bad, but, you know. No, no, yeah, that wouldn't be my top pick. Yeah, Eurasia. AMD, but the rock bands I used to love as well. Um, okay. So okay. you know, Guns and Roses, a little bit of head banging yeah. every now and then. Uh, when I'd lost a when I'd lost a match and there was a player party going on, I wouldn't mind a bit of quiet riot. So yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. No, no. Okay. You've you've turned this around. You've. Uh, uh, okay. Now I, I understand it much better. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Uh, so, 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 what are your three top picks of '80s bands? Do, do you have three, or in particular, or that you yeah, go to? I or? mean, yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, you know, some of those bands started before before them, but I guess they produced music during that '80s yeah. era that I thought was just uh, unbelievable. You know, for me as a rock band, Aerosmith were one of my my all time favorites. 
Um, I just love their music. Um, okay. They yeah. were incredible. I think some of the stuff that Elton John did, you know, I'm the baby of four kids, so I grew up with older brothers and sisters, but I, th I thought the guy was a musical genius. Um, mm. Guns N' Roses, incredible. Mm. Um, okay. Maybe even Queen. I don't know. They yeah. were probably 80s. Yeah. Yeah, Queen, Queen, Queen was good, but they weren't. Uh, I, I didn't listen to them a lot, as much okay. as some of the other stuff out there. But um, okay. yeah, I, I would say probably Aerosmith would be probably one of my top picks. Um, Elton would definitely get a, a mention, and then coming in third from the eighties. Um, now you're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> Somebody like Aha uh, oh would have been huge for me back in the day. Uh, I love them. But okay. uh, listen, don't get me wrong. I love all kinds of music and uh, yeah. you know, I appreciate the talents of the, the, the really good ones these days, like, uh, you know, uh, Chris Martin from Coldplay or Ed Sheeran. For me, those guys are proper okay. musicians, right? They, they just, yeah. um, they've been around for decades. They're, they're no one hit wonders. Although there were some good one hit wonders in the 80s. I'm yeah, like well, they, they, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I don't want to keep you too long, Robbie. Uh, thank you very much. Just, just the last thing here: where, where are you off to next? Um, how, how's the, how does the rest of the year look? Uh, the rest of the year looks like I'll be going to London because we're commentating everything out of the studios there. It hasn't been much traveling just because of COVID. Okay. So I'll do Paris, Bercy, and then I will do the the World Tour finals, which is going to be in Turin this year. Okay. Oh, you're going to do it all out of a studio in, in, in London? Uh, for now, it looks like it, uh, unless something changes. Okay. But I think if, okay. if there's going to be travels um, like there were before COVID, that'll start next year. We will do a lot more on-site. Okay. okay. Um, can I finish? If you have 10 minutes, I always end my uh, um, podcast with a rapid-fire quiz. Uh, very, you, can give me, you can elaborate if you want to keep it very short. Um, okay, let's go. Uh, rapid fire. Are you ready? Okay. What is your first memory of tennis? Um, playing at Westridge Park uh, in some junior events there as, as a youngster, as well as my Max Plum McEnroe uh, tennis racket. Uh, very nice. Me too. Define what type of player you are to somebody who's never seen you play. I would be a servant volleyer. Who, who would um, junk players as much as they could, try and unsettle them as much as they could by rushing to the nets and basically being a pain in the ass. <laughs> Best shot? Uh, volleys. Tennis idol growing up? Beyond Borg and Johnny McEnroe were were right up there in my early days. I think I've got to give Stefan Edberg an honourable mention. Okay. Uh, currently, favourite player, male and female? Um, it's so different when you're older. You have a completely different perspective on it now. You don't idolise these guys because you see them week in and week mm. out. But obviously for the way that Roger plays the game, being a single-hander myself, um, you know, if I could play the game like anybody, it would be him. Mm. But if I had the the mental strength of somebody, it'll probably be Novak, right? If 
if I had the tenacity of a player, I'd want a bit of Nadal. So, yeah, okay. I, I mean, well, you know, the, well, we've, well, we've watched, we've had a generation of players now that's just mind-boggling when you think about what they've done. But um, yeah. yeah, I think aesthetically, no one's played the game like Roger, have they? Well, well, the next question I'm going to put you on the spot. List the big three from your favourite to least favourite. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a least favourite because I appreciate everything that they've done, right? You know, okay. um, uh, we get asked that a lot. You know, who's the best? Who's the greatest? Uh, they're great for different reasons. And I think that's fantastic. I think if they were all exactly the same, you know, if, they, mm. if the best three players all played like Roger, we wouldn't appreciate Roger for what he is. You know, Nadal mm. himself has said if he could play the game and look as good as, as, as Roger was, it would save his body so so much more than, than the style that he plays. And I think that's what makes Rafa so, you know, enjoyable. And then mm. you've got this guy who is just like a hybrid of the two, who's so smooth mm. and just so devoted to his craft and Novak. Um, you know, if, if you wanted a list, probably it would be Roger, Novak, Rafa. Okay. It can even be a club match or a junior match. It doesn't have to be Grand Slam final. Yeah, it was a. There's two matches that I always mention to everybody for different reasons, but quality-wise, um, sure. The 2017 Australian Open final when Federer beat mm. Rafa, uh, commentating on that one, that was. It was unbelievable just to be part of that. Um, I think that would be right up there. And also commentating when Andy Murray won Wimbledon for the first time when he beat Djokovic. Because uh, okay. I played against Andy from a young age. You know, I played doubles against him when he was 15 or 16 years of age. He'd got a wild card into the Nottingham ATP event. And you, you could see back then this kid was unbelievable. Man, his hands, his backhand was world-class even as a 16-year-old. And it was so yeah. nice to see the progression and I'd followed the progression from when he was that young till, you know, when he came on the tour and then, you know, all those Grand Slam finals that he lost and then finally winning the US Open and then finally winning Wimbledon for the first time. Um, and I remember I was commentating on the video for that. Um, do you think he's actually going to be able to, he says his aim is to get into the top 10 again. Do you think he's being maybe a bit optimistic there or... You know, th these guys don't think like we do, Gianluca. Um, mm. There's a reason why mm. they, they've achieved what they have achieved. It's because mm. they don't have these limiting beliefs. Now, now for mm. me, I would say um, it's going to be very difficult for Andy to get back. I, if I had to bet all the money I had, I'd say no, he won't be a top 10 player again. But, mm. you know, um, I never thought yeah. Emma Raducanu was going to win the US Open. I thought she had no no way she was going to win. I thought she did unbelievably well to get to the semifinals. But you know, yeah. they have a different mindset to us. You know, they mm -hmm. just the amount of self belief that they have is uh, yeah. it, it's very difficult for the average sports fan to to comprehend that. I know what it felt like to win a couple of mm. rounds at a tour event. I felt like I was walking on air. And these guys mm. are winning the biggest tournaments week in and week out for decades. Can you imagine the level of mm. belief mm. and self-confidence yeah. that they have? The best tournament in the world. Wimbledon. 
Okay. Uh, your favorite surf best tour event? Best tour event would be, it would probably be a close between Rome and Indian Wells. Very close between those two. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, those, are, those are nice tournaments, yeah. I'd love to go to Indian Wells. Yeah, I've been to Rome many times, but yeah, that's, uh, that's a lot, lot of... your, your favorite surface? Hard court. Hard court. Um, back in the, when you played, what 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 did you use and tension? Uh, Wilson. I've been a Wilson guy for most of my career, and. I played with okay. VS Natural Gut, Babylab Natural Guts, and I would string that at 58 pounds. Okay. Uh, what's the most amazing experience you've ever had? Bit of a difficult one, but... Okay. No, uh, 2017, I tell you, we just done that final with Federer and Nadal. And, you know, I've known Roger okay. for, for many years. I played against him twice in doubles and obviously South African connection, blah, blah, blah. And I remember commentating on that final with a, another Aussie friend of mine, uh, Josh Eagle. And we had, we had gone to thank everybody in the broadcast compound and we'd walk back underneath the stadium to basically get our stuff and leave. And as we were coming back under the stadium in Australia, um, all these security guys came, were starting to come around the corner and it was just telling everybody to move out the way because uh, Roger was coming through with his trophy and he was going to do all his, uh, his major media uh, appearances after, after he had just won. So we stepped back into this corridor um, just to get out the way. Um, and as Roger came around the corner, he had these 10, 12 security guards around him. And he, and he looked to the right where Josh and I were standing and he saw us and he stopped and he walked over to us. Um, okay. And, you know, Josh gave him a high five. Um, and and I, said, I, I said to him, I can't believe you won it. I said, hey, Roger, I cannot believe you won it. And he points at the, he points at the trophy and he goes, um, you know, what do you think? What do you think, China? Everybody calls me China. It's a South African thing. What do you What do you think, China? And I said to him, you know, I can't believe you won it, Rog. He goes, yeah, it's uh, you know one of the sweetest victories I've ever had. And just in that, it was such a cool moment where he just came over to to Josh and I. He had no business needing to do that, but that's you know that's the kind of guy that Roger is. He uh, you know he yeah. understands everybody's role within the tennis world, and he probably knew that we were doing his match. And uh, you know, just those little moments like that, very cool. Oh, fantastic, yeah. For for, for the listeners, because I've got a lot of um, sort of international listeners, that Ch China is sort of slang in South African for for friend or buddy, am I right? For buddy, yeah. Yeah, the equivalent yeah. in Australia would be mates. Um, mates, yeah. Yeah, yeah so China. Yeah, China. <laughs> um, book a rest, you have to book a restaurant and invite free players. They can be from any era, male or female. Which restaurant and which players do you invite? I mean, which restaurant do you book and which players do you invite? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm not a. Uh, I mean, I like I like fancy food, but uh, maybe somewhere nice in Cape Town. Maybe somewhere nice in Cape Town. Um, I've had a couple of nice. I can't even remember the names of the place. Uh, 
in Constantia. It was an unbelievable place. We, we had a meal there that was out of this world. The, the name okay. slips on me for a wine, second. Wine farm, maybe? Wine farm or not? No, no it wasn't a wine no. farm. Um, it was okay. the guy who used to be at the test kitchen. And then he moved over oh. to... Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. I think I know which it is, but Constantia. Yeah. Uh, it was yeah. spectacular. So whatever that place is, probably there, beautiful view. And uh probably McEnroe, um Martina Navratilova, and um Jimmy Arias. Jimmy wow. Arias. Yeah, Jimmy Jim Arias has got the best tennis stories I've ever heard of anybody, but I think the other two could uh, could certainly uh, entertain us as well. I think Johnny Mac, maybe if, if I was going to substitute Jimmy for somebody, maybe Borg, but Borg doesn't speak much, man. Doesn't say too much <laughs> of Bjorn. He just looks good. He just touches his hair a couple of times. And, uh, you know, when you look at him, you see that you don't have to say much. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, Jimmy Aries. Um, yeah, uh, what's your favorite food? Uh, probably Ita uh, Italian or Thai. I, I really love those. I like a lot of different foods. So uh, I love a good salad, okay. a good salad with a little bit of everything in it. Um, that always does me well. But uh, yeah, I, I eat pretty much anything. I, I did one year of, of the army back in the day when we had to do military service. So that taught me to eat anything. Okay. Are, are you superstitious? A lot of tennis players are. I think I was mildly superstitious, but no, I wouldn't say majorly superstitious, no. Okay. How many hours on average do you sleep? Let me tell you something right now. It's a good question. Uh, probably a minimum mm. of uh, eight or nine. If there was a world championships of sleeping, I would <laughs> definitely be one of the top two seeds. Without a doubt, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be I'd be the equivalent of Novak or Roger or Rafa in that department. I can sleep on a poppy, Gianluca. Oh, really? Okay. I can wake yeah, up and go back to sleep time and time again. Uh, I'm, very, I'm very blessed in that department. Okay, we're we're learning some some nice things from you. I, I like this. Um, what what's your favorite country? Uh, New Zealand. Favorite city? Rome. Most difficult sport in the world? Yes. Without a doubt. Mm. Okay. Um, how will tennis look like in 2050, about 30 years from now? Uh, I think there will be the players will be bigger, stronger, faster. Um, but I do hope, you know, the sport and, and those in charge of the sport do more to allow players with a different skill set to prosper. Right now, the game is all about baseline tennis. It's so difficult mm. to become a seven volleyer. And I grew up in an era where you had great baseliners playing against great servant volleyers and I think that matchup was what made tennis popular mm. for 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 a yeah. big part of, of the time that I was growing up so I would like to see the courts quickened up and give those with a different skill set a chance to compete against those who have the benefit of string 
racket technology. They've even got the, the benefit of the court surfaces being so slow these days. So the one thing you can control being the court surface, uh, yeah. it's changed that up. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, definitely. Uh, give a shot, uh, and you can give me a name or whatever comes into your mind. Uh, serve. Sampras. Return. Djokovic. Forehand. Federer. Backhand. Nalbandian. Interesting one. Uh, volley. Rafter. Drop shot. Uh, ben Wapair. Move. Djokovic. Mental toughness. Djokovic. That was a close one with Nadal, I think. Eh? Or... Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think <laughs> what, what's been so difficult for him is, is having to fight off two of the greatest for so long. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean what Nadal's done on a clay court is it's, it's unfathomable, mm. right? Uh, yeah. You know, I was yeah, going to put out a tweet the other day asking, asking people what is, what is likely to be which record is more likely to be broken? You know, somebody winning the mm. French Open 13 times or Monica Seller's record of winning eight majors as a teenager. I mean, which, which do you think would come first? Yeah, and I mean, that, for me, that's also a lot of people forget that. Yeah. The, sorry, last two. Touch, feel. McEnroe. And last one, presence. Aura presence. Roger. Ask yourself a question and ask. Sure. <laughs> uh, Doesn't have to be serious. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, my my uh, so so Robbie, what is your favourite? Um, your favorite dessert. And I'd probably <laughs> have to say a, uh, I do like sweet things. I've got a sweet tooth. Um, okay. A New York style baked cheesecake. Okay. Ah, very interesting. Nice, nice. Uh, Robbie, that, that's it. I really appreciate okay. it. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, fantastic. Um, keep well and, and thank you very much. Only a pleasure, Gianluca. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.